0: Well, we're in the last week of our series where we've been looking at the Christmas story from some different perspectives than what we're used to uh, because we kind of, you know, we got the familiar Christmas story, and we kind of know, we think we know all of it. But we're sh- we're kind of taking a look at some of the the historical background and the culture and all sorts of things like that, trying to get a little different glimpse at the Christmas story. It's a, it's another view of the Christmas story. It's not a different Christmas story, but it might be a broader view. And my my hope and my prayer is that throughout the series that we begin to view the Christmas story in kind of a fresh new way, and maybe it'll help us see Christmas in a new way that we've never considered before, and maybe even see God in a way that we've never seen Him before. So, today I want to give you a uh, different perspective on the birth and the life of Jesus from the historical setting of first century Galilee. I'm going to walk you through some of the social and the political conditions surrounding Jesus' birth, and in doing so, show you another Christmas story from the Scriptures. We're going to start with that famous Christmas passage, Genesis chapter 12, Uh, You don't really think of Genesis 12 if you're like, Genesis 12, what? Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish people. And God says to him this, he says, I am going to make you into a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, central to the life of the Jewish community since way back when was this belief that God was going to do something through the Jewish people that would kind of bless and spill over into the whole world. And over time, throughout the Scripture, we're given more and more detail on what that was going to be. And they came to understand that when God said, all people will be blessed through you, uh, really, He was speaking of a Messiah, a Savior who would be born from the Jewish people and would save the Jewish people. But more than that, not just them, it would extend to everybody everywhere, to the very corners of the earth. So central to the life of Scriptures was this promise of the world's Savior, this Messiah, was going to come. That means every time a woman went into labor, You know, and she's pushing and she's sweating and she's grabbing the guy by his collar going, you did this to me, right? You know, every time a woman went through the pain of labor, there was a chance. You know, you got a Jewish woman with a Jewish husband giving birth to a Jewish baby. There was a chance that this baby could be what? Messiah. Yeah. Uh, So, the pain of childbirth also brought with it the anticipation and the hope of the Savior of the world. Now, along come a group of people called the prophets, who gave more and more detail about this coming savior. One of the prophets was this guy named Isaiah, and Isaiah wrote this. And this was during a dark time. He says, "Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress." And he's talking about what's going to come. He says, "In the future, he God will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, by the by the highway that's kind of going through there." Now. The based on passages like this, there were those in Israel who believed that Messiah was going to come from Galilee. Now remember, these are Eastern people, ancient Near East, Eastern mindset. And the Eastern mindset uh, thinks in terms of pictures and images and, and metaphors. And so where we try to like, categorize everything and get define and detail and describe stuff, the Eastern mind or the Jewish mind would come up with a visual. They, they wanted a picture for stuff. So as they tried to come up with new ways to understand and think about the Messiah, one of the images that they came up with was that of a tree. Of a tree. So a couple chapters later, Isaiah writes this. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. And that's a reference to King David, the stump of Jesse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So he speaks of the Jewish people, kind of like this tree trunk. And out of this tree trunk was going to come a branch, like this shoot. This fresh, young, vibrant branch was going to shoot off from the top of this stump, and the Messiah was going to be like this shoot. Now, there was even a town that was so convinced that Messiah, the Savior, was going to be born in their town that they named their town like Shootville. Okay, that's, that's how we would translate it. It's kind of cocky, right? Like, okay, uh, not only will he be born in Galilee, but it's going to happen right here. In fact, we're going to name our town after that Shoot. Now, the word Shoot in Hebrew is Netzer. And so the name of the town was Netzer Et. And in English, we would translate as Nazareth. Okay? Nazareth in Hebrew means Shootville or Messiah Town or Savior Wood, right? Savior Wood. So if you lived in Nazareth, you lived in Shootville because you believed Messiah, Savior of the world, can be born in my town. Now, a lot of people thought that they were the fulfillment of this prophecy. And if you read the first century literature, like the first century alone, 40 different people claimed to be the Messiah. There were even some people who said, well, I'm, I'm Messiah, and they gathered around them disciples, and they went down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem saying, I'm Savior of the world. <laughs> and they were all killed. Okay? One of them, uh, one guy, Judas of Gamla, Uh, was like, well, I'm savior of the world, let's go attack the Romans. (laughs) And you'd be like, well, I thought the savior of the world would have a brain. But nevertheless, he gathered around him several thousand followers and he attacks this Roman garrison in the city of Sepphoris. And he gets into the arsenal with his followers and they get these knives and weapons and they go out and they kill a few Romans. Well, Rome hears about it and sends a general who not only kills Judas of Gamla, Not only flattens the city, like burns it to the ground, but on the spot orders the execution of every single one of Judas of Gamla's followers. So on the spot, they put up 2,000 Roman execution stakes. They hang every single one of his followers on these crosses. And the idea was that they would just stay up there until the birds came and ate their flesh. And anybody walking by would get the picture, like, you don't make a practice of claiming to be Savior of the world because... This is what happens. And by the way, that was three miles, three and a half miles from Jesus' hometown. 2,000 Jews crucified. So in the first century in Galilee, it was like this hotbed of people expecting any day now the Savior is going to be born. And on a regular basis, you would have somebody who claimed to be Messiah, and you would be faced with a question like, are they Messiah or not? Because you know the Bible does say that a Messiah is going to be born in this region. Now, with that in mind, bloodline and identity were huge, okay? The the land of Galilee had been conquered over and over, been conquered by the Syrians and the Persians and the Romans and the Greeks, and all these different people had conquered the region. And so you had this tight group of Jews living there, but they were threatened all the time by all these different nations. Now imagine if you're a good Jewish girl living in Galilee in the first century, there's a chance that at age 13 you'd be given in marriage, because that was generally considered marriageable age. You'd be given in marriage and you'd marry a good Jewish boy, and then you'd get pregnant. And if you got pregnant, okay, because you're a good Jew, married to a good Jew, you could give birth to what? Messiah. Yeah. Now, what if you decide to marry Harry the Hittite? Hey, right? yeah, that you would be diluting the Jewish community, right? Or you, you go marry Carl the Canaanite who worships Pan, the goat god, and you you got to have to take his gods as your gods. And so if you do that, you marry Carl the Canaanite, then you're not going to give birth to who? Messiah. So you can see why any sort of prohibited sexual union, like if you're a pagan uh, with, with a pagan or just some guy who you're not married to or you become pregnant when you're engaged to a man, Any sort of questionable circumstances surrounding a person's birth were not only a threat to the continuation of the Jews living in Galilee, but they were a threat for the coming of the Savior of the world. That's how they viewed this. Make sense? Okay, so you've been conquered and conquered and conquered, and it's like if we don't perpetuate our people, not only will we not be around, but we won't be present in order to produce a Messiah. So a prohibited sexual union was like a spot and a blemish and a a threat to everything that they believed. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, you can read a a passage that speaks about being a silenced one. I'll let you look at that later on your own. But the idea of a silenced one was if somebody is born of these questionable circumstances, like an illegitimate birth, that person is a scar and a, a stain. They're not welcome. They are a threat to our existence and they're a threat to the Messiah. And they're they're outcasts. Now, if a child was born of an illegitimate union and that that child, they were called a mamzer. They were called a mamzer. Now, this is key to understanding everything that we're going to go through today. Okay, A mamzer was somebody who there was questionable circumstances surrounding their birth. Now, there is a derogatory English word that is sometimes used to describe an illegitimate child. But that word doesn't even come close to what it would be like to have the mamzer tag. Okay? We don't even have language for what this would have meant in the first century. Mamzer. Okay? Now with this in mind, I want to show you a few scriptures. Matthew writes an account of Jesus' life, and he writes to a Jewish audience. He's Jewish, and he wants his audience uh, to know about the kingdom of God and the message that Jesus proclaimed. And so after, he starts out like, with Jesus' genealogy, which he says is Jewish, although there's all sorts of people that kind of join up along the way. that's kind of suspicious, which tells you right away some other stuff's going around uh, here. And then he talks about Jesus' birth. And remember, back then, like, you would have heard this read aloud like in a courtyard or somebody's living room or something, and you would have had an understanding of a mamzer, and you would have understood the coming of the Messiah. And here's what Matthew writes. He says this. He says, This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, which is sort of the G-rated, you know, it's a Christmas story, before they, they had marital relations, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, you're Jewish, and you hear that verse, you immediately would think what? Mamzer mamzer right yeah illegitimate and matthew says well she was found to be pregnant through the holy spirit well that clears it up you know that happens all the time a jewish audience reading this text and you you can find like uh accounts of this in the first couple hundred years after matthew wrote this people just going like oh mamzer mamzer that's what's going on here now with that in mind let's trace a few other passages now, in the first century in Jewish culture, like a child would always be spoken of as the son or the daughter of a father. And in Hebrew, uh, for son, it would be Ben. So uh, Ben David, son of David. Uh, ben Jacob, son of Jacob. Ben Kenobi, son of... You know, that, that's kind of the idea. So you were known as and referred to as the son or the daughter of so-and-so. And in Mark chapter 6, we read this. It says, Jesus left where he was, went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. Sabbath came. He began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Joseph's son? No. Isn't this what? Mary's son. Yeah. The first audience who heard of this would have been like, oh, Mary's son? Hey, you only refer to somebody as the son of a mother if the father was held suspect. Okay? One of the ways you would slam somebody, who you would call them a mamzer or the English equivalent, is that you would refer to them as the son of and then name the woman. It's like this derisive term. And it's the term of somebody who, you know, we're not quite sure who the father is. Now, one of the things that we know about the mamzer tag, about being you know, called uh, an illegitimate child, labeled with this mamzer, you don't shake that. Okay, That goes with you your whole life long. You were made an example, kind of like, listen, we don't honor prohibited sexual unions. This is a tarnish and a stain on us as a people. And it threatens the Messiah. And so, if you're a mamzer, you carry that tag with you till the day you die. Now, in the Gospels, we read all sorts of fascinating encounters Jesus has with religious leaders. And in this one uh, discussion John records for us, there's all sorts of fascinating subtexts going on here. But they, uh, Jesus and the religious leaders go back and forth a bit. And then Jesus says, I'm the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And then they, the religious leaders, asked him, Where is your, What? Father, where is your father? What a weird question. Unless, of course, he's a mamzer. Wait, wait. Where's your father? Rumors are still circulating. And notice later in the discussion, verse 41, they tell, tell him like Abraham's their father. And Jesus says to them, you are doing the works of your own father. And basically what Jesus is saying here is like, you are like the sons of the devil. Okay, You're doing the things your own father does. They reply, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. We, now why in the world would they bring up being illegitimate children unless they're saying, oh, oh wait, you're a mamzer. We aren't illegitimate children. Did God come among us as a mamzer? Was Jesus, because of the circumstances of his birth, labeled with a tag that stayed with him. 30 years later, you got religious leaders saying, well, we aren't illegitimate children. Was Jesus a mamzer? And if so, does this affect any other scriptures? And I want to take you through just kind of a technical moment here with a Greek word, and the Greek word is kataluma. Kataluma. Everybody say kataluma. Kataluma. Yeah, that's kind of a fun word to say. I don't know why. Cataluma occurs like three times in the New Testament. Two of them, it's the same story written by different authors, okay? Uh, I'll show you one of those, but I want to show you the third instance of this word because there's some things going on here, like they're part of the Christmas story and you've heard about it, but if you stop and think about it, it doesn't make any sense unless you start to unpack it this way. Now, two of the times Cataluma comes up, is the same story. We're read uh, Mark records it, Luke records it. Mark 14, Jesus tells his disciples, say to the owner of the house, this guy enters, the teacher asks, Where is my cataluma? Where is my guest room? Now, most families would live like in a single room house, and there would either be like a room at the back for storage or maybe on uh, space on the roof. Where, like, family members could come and stay, or visiting teachers who are gonna have a, a, a meal with their followers could use. Like, Kataluma means guest room, spare room. Now, Mark and Luke both have Jesus saying, Where is my Kataluma? But the words used a third time in Luke chapter two, okay? Luke says that the emperor has called for a census, and the people have to go to their hometown, where their family clans were from, uh, to register. For the census. So it says, Mary and Joseph went to Joseph's hometown to register for the census, and while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the cataluma. There was no room for them in the guest room. The technical meaning would be the spare bedroom. That word inn, that's bad translation. They didn't have motels and inns and things like that back then, the way that we think of them. Luke says there was no room for Mary and Joseph in their family's kataluma, in the the spare bedroom, the guest room. Why is there no room in the kataluma? Now, Eastern cultures pride themselves on hospitality, okay? Many people go well. Well, Mary and Joseph, you know, they went, but Joseph's, uh, you know, family home or relatives' home—it was full. So, so they just said, "Well, sorry, we can't make room for you. You'll have to stay somewhere else." So you're like Uncle Clyde and Aunt Judy, you know, and, and you've come to town, and, and you're part of the family, and you're you're staying there, and a teenage girl and her fiancé shows up, and she's pregnant, and she's about to give birth, and you just stand at the door and go. Already called the spare bedroom. Yeah. Sorry, we got her first. Tough. Eastern cultures pride themselves on hospitality. In fact, it's standard in an Eastern culture, even just for a stranger coming by your tent. It's like, oh, come in, come in. You know? Like, let me give you some food. We'll slaughter a lamb. You know, let, let me bring you some wine. It was standard. Still is standard. Like you visit Eastern cultures today, they talk and they talk and they talk and they invite you in and they, they ask about your family and they're like, hey, let me get you some food and do you need a place to stay? So why in a culture in which hospitality is huge, like to reject a stranger, to not even be willing to give them food or a place to stay, that was unheard of. It was like the ultimate and awful social behavior. And in this culture, there's no room for a young couple and she's about to give birth? Why is there no room? Is it because Joseph's family can count to nine? <laughs> Think about that one for a second. All right. Is it because Mary is carrying a mamzer and you're a disgrace, you're a stain, you are not welcome and we want nothing to do with you? Is it because these kind of people are not welcome in our house? Is it because a mamzer would be ostracized and, and cast out and shoved to the margins? And it's like, Joseph, I don't know who you think you are, showing up here with this woman who's pregnant outside of marriage and you expect us to wrap our arms around you. You are not welcome here. Is that what's going on? You study the texts on a mamzer. As a Jewish family, a mamzer was a threat to everything. And so they believed, especially because of the way they interpreted certain Bible passages, that you needed to keep these kind of people away. You know, like these are the kind of people who were a threat to purity and a threat to bloodline and identity. And the last thing you want is for your kids to be exposed to these kinds of people. No room in the inn. And so you're like out basically in the, in the pole barn on an old cot it's cold, and it's smelly. And you kind of picture Joseph at one point going like, how do we get into this? What have I done? And Mary's going like, well, technically nothing, right? Uh, So the first Christmas, like if you're Mary and Joseph, you're exhausted from travel. You're probably confused, and you're lonely beyond belief. And everybody's in the house up on the hill, and they're they're warm, and the family's together, and, and you're not a part of it. And there's probably these unbelievable feelings of alienation and and rejection. And you're probably wondering, how in the world did we get into this mess? And so this baby's born who's rejected by his family. And at one point later on, like there's one text that says his family came to get him because they thought he was out of his mind. Another text says Jesus goes to his hometown. He's not able to do any miracles there because of such a lack of faith in his hometown. And he can only heal a few people. And Jesus says in his own hometown, I am without honor. And so he got this baby being born from these questionable circumstances, carrying perhaps the Mamzer tag everywhere he goes. And he got his brothers taunting him at one point, saying, well, you know, why don't you just go to Jerusalem and essentially make an idiot of yourself? His te- the text says his own family did not believe him. After his first sermon in his hometown, they try to drive him to a cliff and kill him. Which made me feel better about my first sermon. <laughs> but these religious, you got religious leaders 30 years later going, Well, we aren't illegitimate children. You got Jesus living essentially on the margins of culture. And who does he hang out with? Tax collectors, prostitutes, and lepers. And who feels compelled to And drawn to him, everybody else who feels like a mamzer, right? Everybody else who feels like a mamzer is going like, this guy speaks my language. Maybe Christmas is God's way of saying, I know how you feel. See, one of our preeminent problems with God is we go, well, well, God, you know, like you don't know what it's like down here, right? Maybe Christmas is God's way of saying, yes, I do. See, one of our primary objections to the fact that there might be a loving God is we immediately go, well, if there is a loving God, like, does He know what kind of world we're living in? And maybe God becoming one of us is God saying, yes, I do. If, if only He could walk like a mile in my shoes, you know, and, and know the kind of world I have to live in. And maybe Christmas and God becoming one of us is God saying, I have. There's sandals, but nevertheless, I have. I'm like, if you believe it, and I know that there are those who gather with us who don't believe it, but if you believe the story of God becoming one of us, the fundamental claim is that the God who created the universe didn't stand back from the world He created and was like, you guys messed it up, you fix it. He didn't stay detached, and He didn't stay removed from the ugliness that is life. And there are big parts of life that are are just simply ugly the essence of the christmas story is that god chose not to remain withdrawn from it and detached from it and removed from it but chose to come among us and to somehow not just live in the midst of our pain but somehow chose to take our pain on himself This is the claim of the Christmas story. God said, no, I'm not just going to stand and watch your pain and just be distant. I'm going to enter into life and I'm going to take it on me. See, many people, like their fundamental problem is like you you don't know what I have to go through. And the essence of Scriptures is a God who says, yes, I do. Christmas is God's way of taking away from you and from me the right to ever say, You don't know how it feels. It's like a cosmic act of solidarity. You know how like when you're struggling and you you meet somebody who's been through what you're going through and they say, well, I know how you feel. Why is that so unbelievably empowering? Why are support groups so unbelievably powerful? Because I sit with other people who go, well, this is what I'm struggling with. It's like, no way, me too. Me too. Why is it when someone says, I know how you feel, and you know that they do know how you feel? Why is there this bond with that person that can't be explained? I mean, some of you, you've been to hell and back, and you have friends who have also been there, and you have a bond with that person that you can't explain. All you know is that person, like, they know. They know. And what is the essence of Christmas? God going, I know how you feel. A God who doesn't stay detached but comes among us and takes all of our stuff upon Himself. And what does Jesus do when He's among us? He goes to everybody who feels unclean and rejected and lonely and not good enough. And what does He say? He says, hey, my movement, it's like made up of people who don't have it all together. That almost seems to be like the prerequisite prerequisite you know like are you really screwed up (laughs) great you know like you're good enough for our group everything's upside down he keeps saying if you think you deserve it it's not going to work but if you're utterly pathetic it's like hey join the club and what does he do all these prostitutes and all these tax collectors and everybody who's ugly and everybody who doesn't measure up and everybody who's lonely goes like this guy speaks my language i'm in with this And he says to these people who have been pushed aside by their own families, "Like you got a God who wants to pull you close. And to the people who have been ostracized and told, well, you're not good enough. He says, you have a God who knows you're not good enough, and that makes you good enough somehow. And to all those people who feel like you're on the outside, and you don't belong, Jesus proclaims a message of a kingdom with the Heavenly Father who says, you belong with me. To everybody who's ever felt like your past just like is never going to leave you? You know, think how Jesus must have felt 30 years later. You got religious leaders going, well, we are not illegitimate children. Ever feel like your past just kind of stuck with you? Jesus says, man, I've been down that road. And God, your heavenly father says, I know how you feel. You're fine with me. We don't keep bringing up the past around here. I've I've taken care of that. And not only does Jesus somehow identify with us, but over and over again, Jesus keeps saying to his followers, to this like, ragtag group of, of mamzers and castoffs and like, not good enough to study with a rabbi and had demons in them and they have been unclean and lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes. Like, he keeps saying to them, listen, I'm not done. I'm not done with my full work here. I'm not, not done because I need to suffer more and I need to take everything on me. And his message is that later, somehow on the cross, he takes all of our junk and he takes it on himself. He doesn't stand passively back, but he says, I've taken care of it. I've taken it on me and I've experienced loneliness that can't be explained so that you don't have to. See, generally at Christmas, like we look for Jesus in kind of like the bright, shiny uh, songs and the the ornaments on the tree and ties that light up and perfect little eggnoggy things. And at Christmas, generally, we look for Jesus in all that's perfect. But I would suggest to you that you can also find Jesus in everything that's screwed up. In loneliness, you find a God who says, I'm here for you. And I know what you're going through. And in rejection, you got a Savior who says, yeah, I've been there when you're kind of feeling cast out and kicked out to the margins, you have a Savior, a Messiah, who says, yeah, I've been there. I've been there. See, we look for Jesus and all that nice, happy, pretty stuff. But in the Scriptures, over and over, you have this insistence. You want to know where to find Jesus? You look for Him in the pain. And He's there going, I know how you feel. Rejected? Yep. Yep. Deserted? Yep. Lonely? Yep. Alienated? Yep. Suffering? Yep. Done all that. Did all that for you. Christmas is like this massive, cosmic, divine act of solidarity. It's like this huge, universe wide movement where it's like God, who created everything, says, I would hate for anybody to ever, ever get the slightest idea that I wasn't involved with them and what they're going through. I would hate for anybody to ever think that I'm detached. So I'm going to come among them and I'm going to live like they live, only I'm going to take it all on me. And then no one can ever say, well, you don't know what it's like down here. You don't, uh, you don't understand. God says, no, I take that all away. I've been there. I've done that. I know how you feel. Would you pray with me now? God, Thank you thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it tells us. Thank you for preserving it these years so that we can look at it. We can understand our Heavenly Father who became one of us through Jesus, through took, took a life here, eventually took our place on the cross. So God, this story that we believe is true of you coming among us It's just mind bending that your love would go to those kind of extremes. It just leaves us almost with more questions than answers. So, uh, the idea that you would take all that ugliness and, and darkness that is this life and you would take it on yourself on a cross. God, I pray that we would come to see you as bigger than just present when it's good, but that somehow you're also present when it's really, really bad. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who for this season will be their first one without a loved one. This season will accentuate broken relationships. That some of these holiday events will open wounds and sores. And I pray that in this you would be present in new and creative ways that we've not seen you before. I pray for any of us who have any sense of pretending everything's fine when it's not that we would just be the kind of honest and authentic people who would journey together and help bind each other's wounds we thank you jesus for the the depth of the scriptures and giving us all these new ways to understand the life that you've given us and we thank you for this community where we can sing and lift you up and know that you're good and you care that you know how we feel. And so God, we just give this to you. Lord, wherever this hits us, uh, give us wisdom to know what to do with it and the courage to do it. And in the name of Messiah, all God's children said, Amen.